Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day which you have given to each one of us. Certainly, we face many different situations in the homes from which each of us come, problems of, and trials of various sorts which differ in many ways, and yet you are sufficient for all of them. We come, Lord, often with baggage of one sort or another, and we really need your Spirit to do a work in our hearts. We know, Lord, that it often is not the problem itself, but our attitude towards the problem that makes the difference. And Father, we would desire that we might have that attitude in our hearts and minds that Christ had as he came here to live and to die for us. Lord, we know that we are here to be your servants. We have a hard time sometimes with that concept because we live in a society where the attitude is me first, uh, exaltation of the person rather than servanthood, understanding what it means to, to be a blessing to others and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. God help us with this. And I pray that even as we study uh, these passages of Scripture that relate events which took place 4,000 years ago, we ask, Lord, that the insights given there will burn themselves into our hearts and minds and we will know better how to walk with you because of the teaching of your word. Again, we submit to your authority and pray that you will accomplish your purpose in each of our lives today. In Christ's name, amen. You should have page 52 in front of you if you'd like to follow the outline. We are in chapter 29, beginning chapter 29 of the book of Genesis, beginning reading with verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is high day, still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came about when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lift up, lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Kind of an encounter in the desert, or in the stepland, I guess you could say, more technically here. We have to remember, of course, that this account we're reading here occurs within a few days, probably two weeks, 
of this uh, monumental uh, uh, transforming encounter that he had with God there on the hilltop at Bethel. He continued on his journey, continued on the in the direction he was headed when this encounter that we read about here. He went forth with greater confidence and purpose than before. At first, he was simply running to get away from Esau. Now he's moving forward with a purpose. He's got a plan. He doesn't know what that plan is going to lead to, what are going to be the events down the line, but he knows that God is with him, and that is what is so important here. The future was still unknown to Jacob, just as the future is unknown to you and to me. But God had promised to be with him in everything that transpired in his life. And so he could be more sure about his future in the sense that God was with him and more sure about each step that he took. And it's very obvious how that translates into our lives. God is with us as he promised. And each step that we take, we can take with the confidence that God is with us, whether we feel it or not. This is one of the important concepts, I think, that we need to lay hold of. The Scripture teaches us over and over again that the just shall live by faith. The Scripture does not say the just shall live by their emotions or how they feel about this situation or that. And yet we live in a society where there's so much emphasis upon feeling. I feel this, I feel that, I don't feel this, I don't feel that. And, uh, you know, as most of you are aware of, uh, Dr. James Dobson has written a book called Your Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And, you know, really, basically the upshot of the whole matter is, for the most part, you cannot. I mean, they do play an important role. And sometimes they do lead us to right decisions, but not always. And we need to carefully weigh all that we do particularly when our emotions are, are deeply involved in what is taking place. So Jacob is going forth. Certainly there was an emotional response on his part to this encounter with God and this, this great dream that he had. But emotion doesn't carry you very far. And as you're traveling for the next, as he was traveling for the next two weeks uh, across the uh, rocky uh, land and the steppe land up towards Haran, uh, emotion could have drained away rather quickly as he trod step by step across the landscape there, and he had to be driven by faith, by belief that what he had heard from God and seen was a reality that would bear fruit in his life as he walked faithfully ahead. Now, it's important, I think, for us to notice, first of all here, that in this case, his encounter with God did not change the course of, uh, of his steps. He continued on the journey that he had already begun. God met him on the way. And God did not suddenly change his direction from Bethel to some other place. And I'm speaking not only geographically, but in terms of the ultimate purpose for which he was going to Haran. Remember Abraham? When Abraham had his encounter with God, God changed the direction of his life. Physically, first of all, sent him from Ur to Haran, from Haran down to Canaan, and the scripture says he went into a land which he did not know. He was a stranger, an alien in this land. And God sent him that in that way. And, and he ceased being a, a city dweller, as apparently Laban was here, still probably a herdsman, that is, he controlled great flocks, 
but a person who lived in, in tents and became a tent dweller. We went from Ur to Haran, probably living in a city environment, although he was primarily an animal, a rancher, uh, not an animal, but an animal grower, <laughs> a kind of a rancher to, to becoming a dweller in tents, a Bedouin, if you will. So God had changed the course of Abraham's life, both geographically and in, in many other aspects of his life. And, and we need to think about that in relationship to our own lives. When we have a profound encounter with God, God does not necessarily suddenly turn our life into a different course, a different direction relative to our future, as far as employment or family relations or whatever this might be. He may just meet us along the way as we continue in the course that has been set before us. And God simply becomes the one who, who enables us, inspires us, directs us as we take that course. The way in which we follow the course will be changed, obviously, because now having met God, we, we will think differently, we will act differently, and hopefully we will become a different person. But the course stays the same. But in some instances, God does change our direction. God sets us off on a different course than the one we were going on before we met God. And sometimes that means a different family relationship, uh, a different career, whatever it might be. There have been many instances, and, and this has happened, of course, we know about these instances because the young people came to Simpson to train where they had a particular plan and goal in their lives, and God met them, and suddenly their plan was different. God said, I don't want you to become uh, this or that or whatever it was you were headed out for before. I want you to do this instead. And sometimes it was difficult to make that change, of course, because family didn't understand. How many have been criticized because they feel called into the ministry, into the pastorate, or to serve in the mission field? How many feel that, have felt that uh, they almost became a pariah because they chose that, since God was leading them in that direction, rather than some, quote, more lucrative career? Why is it that that is so? Well, the reason, at least in part, is that many feel that the measure of one's success is in dollars and cents or in social acceptance. Now, there was a time in the history of this country when becoming a minister of the gospel was one of the highest positions you could aspire to. And these were the leading people of society. You go back 200 years, and, and that was so. Even less than 200 years, that was so. But in the late 20th century, to aspire to be a minister or a missionary is to aspire to a second-class position, at least in the minds of many even so-called Christians in our society. How many, quote, Christian parents have discouraged their young people from seeking a missionary career or a pastoral career because it wouldn't you know, give them the social acceptance or the money that they felt their children should have? One of the things that I think is so important for Christian parents is to have in their hearts and their minds that the chief desire for their child should be that that child serves God wherever God might lead that child, and to support the child wholeheartedly as that child seeks to find and, and to follow in God's direction, even if that means going 
to Wooga Booga and, you know, serving the, you know, some strange sounding people as missionaries. Because that's the highest calling that a person can have is to follow in the exact place that God wants that young person. And we as parents should be encouraging, supportive, of course, give whatever God-given direction comes along the way, but not be a hindrance, not be a roadblock. Unfortunately, so many Christian parents are influenced by the attitude of the world, and uh, God needs to change that. In the first verse of this particular chapter, we discover one verse covers a whole trip. <laughs> then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. That was it. All the way from Bethel to the outskirts of Haran in those words. Obviously, God wasn't particularly interested in giving all the details of that trip. What were Jacob's thoughts as he went along the way? As he passed by, possibly within sight of the Sea of Galilee, as he traveled north through Damascus, and he looked at the Anti-Lebanon range, and as he traveled further across the steppe land up towards Haran. What were his thoughts? What were his feelings? They're not recorded for us. They weren't essential to understanding what God is doing here. It was 200 mile, I mean a 400 mile journey he had before him after encountering God at Bethel. I mean, we're talking about two weeks. That's a bit of time to be traveling out across the landscape. The uh, literal Hebrew here, when it says he went along on his journey, is that he picked up his feet and went. In Abraham's, uh, no, not Abraham. Uh, he came to the land, the scripture tells us in this passage, of the sons of the east. Now, as you go back through and study the Old Testament, you find that the term east, the term east, had a rather ominous connotation to it. Often the term east was almost synonymous with, with evil. This would be true later amongst the Hebrew people, the Israelites, as their nation developed. But this is probably not true at this time. Because the only encounter from the east that was, was evil that we have record of in Scripture up to this time was the invasion by Chedorlaomer out of Mesopotamia. That was the only, quote, evil encounter described in Scripture up to this time. And we have to remember, where did Abraham come from? Abraham came from the east. He came out of Ur of Mesopotamia, out of the very heart of that, quote, what would be later wicked land or that source of, of great evil. So, what does it mean here, land of the sons of the east? Why is that given as a phrase in here? Why doesn't it just say he went to Padanaram? Or he went to Haran? Why does it say land of the sons of the east? Well, there seem to be a couple of uh, intents here. First of all, the land of the east was generally referred to as a land on the other side of the Euphrates River. Euphrates became the great line of demarcation between east and west, at least as far as it was viewed by the people who lived in the west, that is in the Levant. They looked upon the great river. In fact, in scripture, sometimes it's just called the great river, and it's not even defined or said to be the Euphrates, but that's directly what is referred to the Euphrates River. Now, to us, we look at the Euphrates and we say, what's the Euphrates? I mean, how does that compare 
to uh, the Amazon or the Mississippi or one of those. Well, it's, it's not a world-class river in that sense. But geographically, considering the historical context of that time, it was the great, the great river. Also, it probably was referring to the idea that it was the land of Jacob's ancestors because the word defined or translated as east here can also be translated antiquity. The land of the sons of antiquity, meaning his ancestors, the land from which his family came. Now, I don't know if you can picture the journey. If you've never been to Israel, it's a little bit harder to picture this journey. Bethel is kind of a, a small hill top there in the uh, what was later the hill country of Ephraim, heartland of what would later become the nation of Israel. And traveling north, he traveled north on the ridge route, which was somewhat less heavily traveled than either the King's Highway to the east or the Via Maris, the way of the sea on the west, but nevertheless was an important route. And he traveled over hill and dale through the rocky countryside north, past the Sea of Galilee, turning up into the valley that leads to Damascus. And certainly there from Damascus, he journeyed on through Hamath and Aleppo, crossing the Euphrates River and traveling some 60, 65 miles or so to Haran, which was located to the east of the Euphrates River. Along the way, he would have seen a lot of steppe country grasslands, flatlands, and yet he would have seen the mountains too, the Lebanon and the Lebanon ranges, would have been to uh, his west as he traveled north past Damascus and Aleppo and so forth. Hamath was located at the top of the Fertile Crescent. As one traveled up the Euphrates River and then came across to the coast and down, one was traveling the zone of greater rainfall uh, of the supply of adequate water, particularly from the river. Hamath tended to be right about the apex or the top, the northernmost uh, point on the Fertile Crescent. Today, as I mentioned to you when we talked about uh, Heron before, I say Hamath? Heron before was uh, the fact that it is today in Turkey, southern <laughs> Turkey. But Turkey and, and Syria have a border that's close to Heron today. Nearing Haran, we're told, he spotted some shepherds and their flocks, three of them, three distinct flocks, located by a covered well. Now, as he traveled along the route, since it was the major trade route of that day, he certainly encountered people along the way, but apparently he hadn't encountered any locals for a while. And so he saw these people, obviously, they had, shepherd, they had sheep there, so they were locals, and so he went over to asked them how far it was to Heron. He probably had lost his AAA map and so wasn't really sure how far it was to, to Heron. Now, isn't it interesting that he came to the very well where he would encounter shepherds who knew his uncle? And not only that, to the very well that within the hour his cousin who would be ultimately his wife and the one through whom the covenant would pass to the children of Jacob, at least some of the children of Jacob, that he would encounter her at that same well. That's a possibility. It's a possibility. <laughs> 
But the way it's written here, it makes it sound like he wasn't really too certain. The question is, how close were wells? The implication here, because of the distribution of the, of the flocks, we'll be talking about that a little bit, and the weighting and all of this seems to indicate that wells were probably not too close together. Some commentators think that this wasn't even a well, that it was a cistern, in fact. Whatever the case may be, it's possible, sure. Uh, but, of course, the trade route was well marked. It's not like, you know, he went from well to well and had to have a compass to try to find his way along because he wouldn't know where, which way to go. The, the route was clearly marked on the ground because it was well worn, as well as uh, the many caravans he certainly passed along the way. Well, whatever the case may be, I think it's clear that this is providential. It's really, I think, the very first clear indication that God was with Jacob just as he promised he would be. You know, put yourself in Jacob's place. If there had been another well, and let's say it was 20 miles further south, would they have known who would be at the next well? Well, maybe. But the way he asked the question, do, you know, where are you guys from? Do you know Laban, perchance? You know, all of these things seem to indicate the providential nature of this particular encounter. The passage tells us that Jacob saw three flocks lying near the well. Now, the implication is he calls it high day. It was probably maybe just a little bit after noon. And so he was surprised to see them all sitting there at the well with the sheep just lying around uh, in their little flocks. Remember who Jacob is. His family was a Bedouin family. Jacob grew up raising sheep. Remember, this is not, and we're not talking about a guy who's about 19 here. We're talking about a man who is in the full, fullness of his manhood. And he has had a lot of experience herding animals. And he knew that flocks were normally watered quickly. You don't just sit around waiting around passing time of the day so that you can later on water your flock. You get your flock to the water and get them watered so you could get out and find good pasturage. As long as there is daylight, you need to be finding good pasturage for these animals. Even though this was steppe land, steppe land in which you do find grass, if you have enough flocks around, you're going to have to keep traveling further and further out to find good pasturage because it's being eaten off constantly. And so he was surprised to find them there. So he questions their idleness there. And notice what he, he says uh, in verse 7. Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Hey, guys, this is when you're supposed to be doing this. Water the sheep and get to it. This is a voice of authority here. Now, you wonder why he, he, he stands in sort of a, a, a position of a superior here. He's not, he's not saying... The implication is not that, why are you doing this? He's saying, water the sheep and get to it, folks, as if it was his business. I guess because of his great experience, he felt he'd make it his business. At least it might seem that. Now, why were they doing what they were doing? Why were they just parked at the well waiting? Well, there seems to be two possibilities here. The first possibility is that there was a, a rule, whether a written rule, a rule of the land, or simply a rule uh, of agreement, a custom, 
that the stone would be removed at a certain hour and that all the flocks would then be watered in order of their arrival. So to be there first would mean you get your sheep watered first, then you could get on with your business. And so there they were waiting until the last flock came so that they could roll the stone, do the watering, and, and, and be on about it. This, this is a possibility here. It, the implication is that this is not a flowing well. The stone is over the opening. Why would the stone be over the opening? Well, to prevent water being taken unnecessarily, to reduce evaporation, to prevent pollution, many different reasons for which it might be open. It also tends to give some credence to the idea that we're talking about a cistern here and not a well dug into an aquifer, but rather a collecting place for water when it did rain. And so it had to be conserved uh, even from evaporation. And there have been many examples of this discovered in the Near East. Cisterns which had round roll stones rolled over the opening to prevent the evaporation and the pollution of the water. And so this, this may be that situation. But more likely, more likely was the concept or the idea that we're talking about mostly young boys and ladies here who are shepherding these flocks. And it's very possible that they couldn't move the stone until there were enough of them together to have the strength to move this stone out of the way. This seems to be alluded to, at least in part, at the end of verse 2, where the Lord took the trouble to have Moses write, now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. Why say that? What's the purpose? If you don't even tell anything that happened in Jacob's life for two weeks of travel, why say the stone was large? If that doesn't play a significant role here in what is to transpire. And so it would seem that uh, the latter choice uh, of the reason seems to be more logical. Now Jacob addresses the shepherds there very politely. He says, calls them my brothers. Now, the word which he used there can be literally translated as brother in the sense of blood brothers, but it also can be translated as fellow countryman friend. So it has different connotations and certainly was being used in the latter connotation in this particular circumstance. Now, think what's implied here. This man has traveled some 500 miles from Beersheba to the outskirts of Haran. He has traveled through many tribal zones, and yet he is talking to these people, apparently with no problem at all, which seems to indicate that there's no language barrier here, that they understood him, he understood them, as they talked back and forth together. Now, this isn't really illogical. This is actually quite logical when you think about that, because Abraham came from Haran, Sarah came from Haran. Rebekah was born in Haran, apparently, and came south into Canaan. And so it would seem that from that factor alone, Paden Aram, whatever language was spoken there, which was most likely Aramaic, uh, would have been known to them. Now, Aramaic was generally the trade language of that part of the world in those days the language of commerce, the language by which merchants could converse and trade with each other from one end of the Fertile Crescent to the other. And so 
it's possible that that was the language of Jacob and that that was the language he spoke in Canaan, even at Beersheba, and that he got along with the Hittites and the other people who lived in the area, other Canaanites, because they also understood Aramaic and he didn't have to learn the local dialects. Whatever is the case, Hebrew as a distinct language does not seem to evolve until the 400-year uh, period in Egypt. That's the most likely period of time in which the Hebrew language would have evolved into a distinct language separate from its uh, Aramaic roots. In questioning the shepherds, Jacob discovered that they were from the Haran area and that they knew Laban. You know, bingo, here he goes. And that the very well at which he was standing, Laban's daughter was, would soon be arriving. In fact, she probably was in the distance because it seems the implication uh, from what they're saying there in that verse is, and even Rachel is coming. You know, there she is off in the distance with the sheep of Laban. And the scripture pointedly says at the end of verse 9, when it says Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. In other words, this was not just, you know, the day when one of the guys was sick and so the father said, hey, daughter, could you go out and watch sheep for a while? No, this was her task. This was her job. She was a shepherdess and she took the sheep of Laban out. Now, this does not necessarily mean that these were the only sheep of Laban, that he may have had other flocks, they were dist distributed in other areas, and that he may have had other animals also at that particular time. But she was a shepherdess, and she was caring for at least this particular flock that belonged to Laban. Now, verse 9 specifically informs us that while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came, which I think supports the idea that when they said, and, and, and his daughter is coming, that they were indicating there she was uh, not too far away because she arrives while he is still speaking with them. I think it's always important for us to realize that what you have recorded in Scripture is probably not the entire conversation that took place. God inspired Moses to record the salient points, the points that bring the story along as God intended it to be understood by those who would read it. Certainly other kinds of things, other conversation was carried on between Jacob and the shepherds as they waited for Rachel to come. So what is Jacob's first reaction? Rachel comes. Well, the scripture tells us he ran over and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well so that Rachel could water her sheep. Now, what does this tell us about Jacob? Well, for one thing, I think it reinforces the concept that I've mentioned several times before, that we're not talking about a 98-pound weakling here. You know, the kind of guy who, when he went like this, kind of hunted around to find, see if there was any kind of a change in the surface of his arm, you know? I, I think we're talking about a husky man here. He single-handedly, the, the implication is that he single-handedly rolled this stone off the well. Now, maybe he had a little extra shot of adrenaline here because this gal has shown up, you know, and he wants to, you know. I've done my, uh, I've been at the uh, World Gym lately, and I've done my workouts, and so here I am, folks. 
I think Jacob was a kind of a honk here. <laughs> uh, I don't think he was rolling the stone to prove anything. I think he really wanted to, to show kindness to his cousin as she came there. I think that because Jacob rolled the stone away, the other shepherds made no issue about J Rachel's flock watering first, although it arrived last. I, thought, I think they thought, first of all, well, if he's going to roll the stone, sure, let her sheep water first. And second of all, they might have thought, I don't want to tangle with him anyway. You know. Remember later on when Moses came out of the wilderness and encountered the situation at the well where some shepherdesses were being bullied around by some shepherds, and uh, Moses basically laid them out so that the shepherdesses could water their sheep. And then, of course, he went on to marry one of the shepherdesses. I don't know what that means. It just, I guess it means you need to be careful what you do when you're out at a well. Uh, and some gal comes with her sheep. You know, if you help her, you might end up marrying her. It's possible. Yes, it is possible. In fact, one commentator indicates, and you know, I don't see that, that's, that it's necessary here, but it's a possibility. One commentator says that all of these shepherds were Labans and that all these flocks were Labans and that the shepherds who were sitting around were lazy. And therefore, when Jacob took over and started doing all this, he proved that he was a man of, of real get ahead and do the program. Well, you know, that's a possibility here, but I don't think that you can necessarily say that that is so. To me, the way they speak seems to indicate that they, they know Rachel, they know Laban, but they're not necessarily in his employee. But it's possible, sure, it's possible that it's his cistern or his well, and therefore they had to wait until she got there in order to open the well because she had the key, so to speak, in that she was the one who had to give permission. Well, while the sheep were drinking, Jacob hauls off and kisses Rachel. On the cheek, of course. It, it was, of course, a sign of family affection, and, and that was very characteristic. He didn't do anything uncharacteristic here of what was common in that day. However, it just really depends here on whether verses 11 and 12 are in time sequence. In other words, then Jacob, verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Then Jacob, and Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father. In other words, if those verses are in chronological order, then what he's doing is he rolls off stone, gets her sheep water, and then he goes over and kisses her on, on the cheek and cries before he tells her who in the world he is. I think that she must have been a little bit wary of this guy, you know, just walking up out of the desert. Who is this character anyway? And sure, she's grateful that he's rolled the stone away and that he's allowed her sheep to be watered. But what would you do if some total stranger walked up to you kissed you on the cheek, and then just broke down totally emotionally. First of all, you'd think you had somebody who was a little bit aggressive, but also a little unstable here on your hands. But, but think about the situation for a moment. Jacob had come from an extremely tense and difficult situation at home. He had had this powerful encounter with God. And he had been traveling, apparently alone, for two weeks, walking through the landscape. And he comes to a well, and whom does he encounter but his first cousin? Out of the blue. I mean, he just couldn't handle it anymore. All these things just piled up on him and just overwhelmed him at this 
moment of encounter. Well, fortunately, he told her who he was. Did her heart go piddly-patter when she heard who he was and saw him? It doesn't say. Told says that she ran away, <laughs> but she ran away to go home and uh, tell her father. Now, what happened with the sheep? Well, I think the implication is, of course, that she turned the sheep over to Jacob and said, would you watch the sheep and bring them on? I'm going to run ahead and tell Dad that you're here. Verse 13. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, that she ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Hmm, how many of us would like our employer to say, Hey, by the way, what should I pay you? Whoa. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Sounds like the grist from which a romance could be written. We are not told how far this well was from Haran, but certainly it was far enough that Haran could not be seen, so probably a few miles. And so Rachel ran out ahead to get there and to inform her father that jo Jacob was coming with the flock. And Laban responded very excitedly, and he ran out to meet Jacob, and he expressed family acceptance, doing the, the hug and kiss and thing, which was characteristic and is still characteristic, of much of the old world, brought him home, sat him down to the uh, food, fed him, and then listened to his story. He knew of Jacob, certainly, but he didn't know all of the events that had transpired. And so Jacob, I think, went back to square one and related the whole situation, probably even the situation that, that developed at home and why he had fled. And certainly the encounter with God and then the encounter at the well. He really related all these things. And I think as he did so, he implied the providentiality of it. That God had led him to this moment and to this place. Well, Laban accepted him as if he were his own son, it seems. And took him into his household immediately. He didn't say, well, uh, kid, uh, Motel 6 is down the road there. No, he kept him in his house. Of course, that's not terribly unusual. Bedouin or Near Eastern hospitality is uh, quite well known. But as Scripture says, of course, he was there a month. How many of us have had uh, some distant relative drop in for a month? <laughs> and you begin to wonder if they're ever going to leave. Obviously, though, the implication is clear that Laban didn't want Jacob to leave because Jacob was making a major contribution to the household. He was not there as a guest. He was a working member of the family. And I think it was already clear in just one month 
that Jacob's presence was somehow a blessing upon that family, that somehow God was already beginning to bless the family because of the presence of Jacob. Maybe the, 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 the flocks were finding better pasture sooner. Maybe they were already in a month reproducing. Oh, who knows what all was, was happening here. But I think that Laban was moved by God to make this particular offer. Now, some commentators think that he was simply moved by his avariciousness. He didn't want to, Jacob to feel that there was any kind of family bonding here or that Jacob would any, in any way become an inheritor because of his service here, but rather that he would become as a hired man. And thus there would be a distance here between them and there would be nothing owed by Laban to Jacob because he had given him his, his wage. Now obviously, technically, there was no way in which Laban would necessarily owe Jacob any inheritance down the line even if Jacob did say, stay and serve because he was not a son or a daughter. And obviously it was better for Jacob to receive a wage than just to receive room and board and nothing else. So Laban made this rather seemingly to us profound offer. Name your wage, young man. Now in order to understand Jacob's response here, we're given the information of verses 16 and 17. Laban had two daughters the elder Leah and the younger Rachel. Now, Leah means weary or impatient. And you wonder, why would somebody name their daughter like that? Well, it could have been that she was born at a time when her parents were weary or who knows. Maybe she demonstrated an impatient character, whatever. But Rachel, the younger sister, had a na name which meant ewe, you know, a female sheep, which to us may not sound like a particularly good name to be given. You know, hello, female sheep. <laughs> you know. But in that society, it was, it was a very, and, and in that uh, culture, that was a very good name. That was just about as good a name as you could be given because of the importance of the female sheep in the economy of those people. Now, very interesting thing here. The New American Standard, as I read it to you this morning, and the NIV, if you possess it today, uh, both tell us that Leah was weak of eye. Weak of eye. Now, the Hebrew word is rock, which is translated here weak-eyed. But it is more often translated other places in Scripture as gentle, soft, tender. And so I think the King James is more accurate here in its translation where she is said to be tender-eyed. And I think that's much more fitting here in the description because in verse 17 it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. I mean, that, that's not a very good comparison there. It's like, you know, she had to go around like this to see anything whereas Rachel was this lovely woman. I think it's a contrast of differing beauties here. Uh, obviously, Ray, Leah didn't have the facial uh, form beauty that Rachel had, but she had something that was considered very important in the Near Eastern world. She had, she had tender eyes. She had 
the eyes that were eyes that were attractive uh, in that particular society. And by the way, eyes tended to be something of quite great importance because they wore more clothing in that society and in those days than we do today. And therefore, the eyes play a, a bigger role in demonstrating the beauty or the character of a person. Jacob was taken with Rachel from the very first moment. I think when he laid eyes on her out there at the well, I mean, this guy was already becoming a goner. And in the intervening weeks, that first attraction developed into true love. And even though it isn't said in so many words, the implication is that this was reciprocated and that Rachel and Jacob became uh, committed in their hearts at least and minds to each other, whether officially so or not yet. And so Jacob asks for his pay that he might be given the hand of Rachel in marriage and he would give in exchange seven years of service. How many men today would trade seven years of hard work in order to gain a particular young lady? One of the proofs of true love was the fact that he was willing, and she too for that matter, to wait the seven years before they could consummate this love relationship. This is one of the great tests between love and infatuation. Infatuation often leads to great impatience. You know, it's the young couple that can't wait another month till they get married because they just can't wait, you know. You know, it, it can be that the love is just really that strong that uh, they have this desire to get married very quickly. But uh, sometimes it's the product of infatuation rather than true love. Well, Laban knew a good bargain when he saw one. And he, be he believed that seven years of service by a particularly blessed and capable young man, that's a great bride price. Well, Jacob had nothing else. He had nothing else to offer. He couldn't bring golden earrings and, and the promise of wealth as uh, Eliezer, the servant, did when he came in order to obtain Rebecca. Sure, there was the hope, the promise, the possibility someday that Jacob would be the inheritor of Isaac's wealth, but that wasn't a sure thing because he was far away now and the situation at home was a little bit upset. He certainly felt, Laban felt, that it would be far better to marry this daughter of his to Jacob than to just some person out there in the general society because he knew something of the character and the background of this man Jacob. Now, one thing he failed to do was to warn Jacob about a particular custom. Now, it's possible Jacob knew the custom but felt that the bargain would override the custom. I'm making a deal for your younger daughter, Rachel. Got that? Younger daughter, Rachel. I will work seven years for her. Is that okay with you? It could be he felt that that would override the custom. It is possible. Now, that when the, point, the day of marriage came, or as the day of marriage was approaching, it's possible that Laban made up the custom on the spot. 
Because, you know, there's, there's no really certain evidence that that was the way it was in those days in that society, that the older had to be married before the younger. It's possible he decided that was the custom of the land and sprung it on Jacob after he had already tricked him and given him Leah as his first bride. Whatever the case, Jacob worked blissfully for seven years, looking forward to that great prize down the line. You know, in a human way, he demonstrates the kind of way we should live as we look forward to what God has for us. That this momentary light affliction really should pale into insignificance relative to the great reward that we as God's people have down the line. Rather than being overwhelmed by the troubles of the moment and feeling that God has abandoned us and that life isn't worth living, we, we need to focus on the goal. As Paul said, I press towards the prize of the, of the high calling of God, the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And as we press towards that prize, then life around us becomes a little less tedious, maybe. He worked for seven years and it seemed to him but a few days. Now this reveals, of course, that he was secure in his situation. He was secure in his relationship. He believed in Laban's promise. Otherwise, that seven years could have seemed like an eternity to him, couldn't they? The commentator, Kyle Yates, makes the following interesting observation about this passage. It says, Laban gladly received the son of Rebekah into his family circle. Perhaps he remembered the lavish display of wealth brought by Eliezer back when his sister was acquired. Perhaps he was impressed by the strength of the young man who might become a good shepherd. Might become a good shepherd? I mean, this is all he'd done all his life. Almost certainly he considered the possibility of a husband for his daughters. Leah and Rachel were both eligible. Laban never missed an opportunity to drive a hard bargain. The young nephew from the hill country would learn to deal cautiously with him. In fact, Jacob would learn to outwit the chief trickster of all the children of the East. Next week, we'll begin with the 21st verse and move on to the 30th chapter, and we talk about the birth of a nation.